0: The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2015, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon was from Friday, June 5th. Sour Families, a tasting of sour beers aged in different spirits barrels. Presented by Jason Perkins, Allegash Brewing Company. Yeah, uh, I think we are in for a treat. This is going to be... Kind of interesting you can if you look up here on the table you'll see that three out of the five beers are hand labeled um they were also hand bottled so these are beers that are not available yet so that should be fun in and of itself um I've, ne- I've never actually done a presentation specifically like this so i think it should be fun for you to see the different flavors that we can get through these processes that we're doing here today um like pete said i'm jason uh, from allagash and i've been there for Oh, almost 17 years now. So, um, you know, see a lot of change in the industry and a lot of change in Allagast. It's been a fun ride to be a part of it. Um, and as you probably know, we do a very wide range of Belgian-style beers, all Belgian-style, but both, uh, you know, wild sour beers and also, um, you know, non-wild and sour beers. But today we're going to be really working with just some pretty interesting sour beers. Um, so I'll just, in a quick nutshell, two of these... Uh, Five beers up here are the base for the other three. So um, the first one we're gonna try, which I'll explain in a little more detail, is called Helena, um, which is effectively a sour, you know, our interpretation of a Flemish sour red, Flemish-style sour red. Um, James and Julie, which we're gonna try in two beers, is a, is a you know, Flanders brown, sour brown. Uh, and then the other three beers are those same base beers aged in, in different spirit barrels. So. You know, the beers we're going to try in a lot of ways, and their foundation are going to be pretty similar, but you're going you're to hopefully get to experience some of the different flavors that can come about from aging in these different barrels. Um, we're trying to let them warm up a little bit, so as, it, as you're sampling the beer, you might notice more flavors coming off after, after it warms up a little bit. Um, before I get started with you know, kind of tasting notes and what's going on with this beer, just a quick kind of overview of barrels at Allagash and, and, you know, kind of our philosophy on using oak barrels. Um, We very much envision or look at barrels as another ingredient. Like, just like any other ingredient, whether it's hops, malt, yeast, etc., it's part of the recipe process. So, you know, people often say, well, why do you use this barrel versus that barrel? Or or which barrel should I use if I'm aging beer? And it really depends on what you want to get out of the barrel. So that's the way we kind of look at it is, you know, what flavors do we want to get out of the barrel Um, and, you know, what's the purpose of it? And, you know, I guess one way to explain that is uh, our beer Curio, which you might be familiar with, which is our triple aged in bourbon barrels. In that case, you know, what we're looking for, I guess, is fairly simple. We're looking for the flavor of the spirit. We're looking for, um, you know, classic oak kind of uh, charred oak, vanilla, coconut type flavors. And, and that's, that's it. We're not looking for over-oxidation. We're not looking for um, you know, any kind of wild character. That's it. So that's kind of the, that dictates how long the beer is aged, only about six weeks, and what temperature it's, it's stored at, and so on. You know, The other end of the spectrum, with some of our sour beers, our Cool Ship beers, for example, which are spontaneously fermented beers, we're looking at a barrel To not really contribute flavor per se from the barrel and the oak itself, we intentionally select what uh, a winery would call a neutral barrel, so a barrel that's gone through several cycles at a winery and has had all the tannic and vanilla and kind of buttery-type notes kind of leached from the barrel from various usage. In that case, we're looking for the barrel to be uh, a storage vessel, a semi-porous storage vessel to allow the microbes that are naturally present in this beer to do its thing. So those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum. What we'll be trying today is kind of somewhere in the middle, um, in terms of what we're trying to get out of the barrels. So anyway, onto the beer. I know you, you're very patiently waiting to try the beer. You're allowed to try it now. So um, so like I said, this is um, a beer we're calling Helena. Not, not yet been released. Probably later this year it will be for the first time. It's, um, like I said, you know, Flemish-style sour red is what it's kind of modeled after. The beer starts in stainless steel with a normal, uh, with our normal house ale strain. Uh, It goes through full fermentation that way. You know, we use a little bit of um, biscuit malt, a little bit of special bee malt, a little bit of Munich uh, to give it a little bit of body to it. Uh, Very little hop character. Uh, And then it, after primary fermentation, which is about two weeks, it spends over two years in a large oak tank, also called a Fodor. So in this case, this large oak vessel is about 3,000 gallons. During that time, we, at the beginning of that process, we add our own kind of homemade cultures of lactobacillus and pediococcus, which produce lactic acid in the beer over time, making it therefore sour. But it's a very clean sourness, as you'll note from it. It's you know, not a lot of vinegar notes, very, not, not necessarily a burning sourness, as much as it's a nice, clean sourness. Um, so, you know, there's some kind of candied apple flavor there. There's, uh, you know, some fruit, strawberry, biscuit flavors in the, or in the aroma. I get a lot of almost Venice character in the finish, and some oaky tannin. So it is an oak barrel, so we're getting a little bit of that kind of oak character leached into the beer itself. Um, but very clean kind of tartness, almost like Meyer lemon in the finish. So like I said, it, it's over two years process for this beer. Um, the stainless steel portion, normal fermentation, is just a couple weeks, maybe three weeks tops. And then the souring process really takes takes quite a bit of time. The fodder that we use for this beer previously held uh, red wine, actually from um, a winery out, out in California. Um, Bonnie Dune Winery is the winery that we particularly got those from. So. A little bit of uh, residual wine character to the beer, some oak character left in the oak, but it had been used a couple times before we before we got it. And we really, we found, you know, once we started brewing this beer, it was never necessarily my intention to use it for other purposes. Um, you know, this, this was intended to be a beer to stand alone and... and here it is, and, and we will release it on its own. But um, after we started working with it, we realized it was kind of this great kind of base beer for other beers. So um, Emotional Honey, which we'll try next, is one of those beers. We do a beer a couple times a year. We call Little Sal, which is um, this is the base beer with blueberries added. Um, anyone ever read the so- story blueberries for Sal? Anyone has kids? Or if you live in Maine, you probably would know it. But. A kid's story about blueberries picking. Little Sal was a little kid. Um, people who know the book think it's the greatest name in the world. All the rest of you think it's, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so it was kind of a cool side, uh, a little side effect from from brewing these beers. As we found that you know we could you know really play around and use them as as base beers for all these other interesting side projects. So you know all these other beers we taste we're, we'll have here are you know, either, you know, one oak barrel or a couple oak barrels, really, really super small scale stuff. Any questions on this beer before we move on? This is really intended to give you, you know, we only have the one glass, so store as much of these flavors in your head as you can as we get into these other ones and you'll kind of get a sense of how they differ as we roll along. So the next beer, I'll just start explaining it here. This, this next beer, is the base beer is the beer you just tried. So it lived in the, in the fodor for um, nearly two years. We then aged it in some mead barrels. So interesting side note about these mead barrels is, you know, I mentioned Curio, Curio earlier. Curio is a year-round beer we do aged in bourbon barrels. We get the bourbon barrels fresh to us from the distillery. We get them within about a week of being emptied. They're filled right away. Curio ages in them for six weeks and so on. And, and typically because the flavors that um, we want to get out of those bourbon barrels are, we are leached out after the first use, we, we don't reuse those barrels in most cases. They get used for you know, planters or for making rain barrels and stuff like that. We have a lot of excess. But in this case, we have a couple other outlets of local wineries, local mead makers, sometimes other breweries. And so these mead barrels we used actually had a cycle of bourbon first, then RBL Curio, then mead, and after mead, back to us again for this beer. So it kind of went through a cool little cycle. Um, Barrels, when taken care of, can get used and used again and again, provided they're still giving you what you want out of them. You know if you're not getting the flavors, there's no point in using it anymore. But in this case, they were kind of they were reinfused with mead from from a local mead maker um, right in Portland. Um, so it aged in those mead barrels for um, about six or seven months. So certainly longer than we do for curio, but it's compared to other sour beers we make a relatively short period of time. So you know, you certainly get some of those same flavors. You get that candied apple kind of aroma. Um, You get some of, you know, some of that same caramelized sugar type flavor. But you also get some some other stuff there. You're starting to get a little bit of oxidized notes, so you get like some sherry characteristics in the beer a little bit. Um, You certainly can get a little bit of kind of spirit. It's almost perceives like bourbon, even though I don't think it's really the bourbon flavor you're getting, but you're getting some of those same charred oak flavors that you can get from a bourbon, aged in oak. Um, certainly honey. Um, you know, that's obviously what mead's made out of, so you certainly get it, some of that. I get a little bit of vanilla, burnt marshmallow almost in the flavor. Um, and right in the finish especially, the, for me, the mouthfeel and the finish is just all just more rounded over A little bit stronger, not a lot. The first beer, Helena, is 6.5%. This is 6.8%. So just from a little bit of pickup from from what's left in the barrel, but also just natural evaporation that's gonna happen in a barrel over time, you're getting a little bit of condensing there and uh, concentration of, of the beer, getting a little bit more of a warming effect. And actually, as we go, these beers will get stronger as we go. The name of the beer is Emotional Honey. Um, it's not, the, the, the name basically came from kind of an inside thing, but the, a couple of people in the office have this board by their desk that says what they want their band names to be. So they keep a running list of like what their band names will be if they ever make a band, even though none of them play music. And Emotional Honey was one of them. And Mead, Mead's Honey, so that's kind of... Names are a pain in the ass. So... <laughs> We find them wherever we can get them. Um, so, uh, Yeah, so any other questions on this beer? Yeah. I'm sorry, just could you repeat the sequence of the, the process, barrels? please? For just the barrels themselves? Yeah, for sure. So um, we get them from the distillery we use for bourbon. You know, side note, bourbon actually, by law, can only be made from a barrel that's a fresh barrel, so they have to get rid of them, um, we get, you use them for curio. So the barrel comes to us after about a week after emptying. It's typically filled with triple, uh, which turns into curio. Six to seven weeks of aging, typically, for curio. We then send them to the um, mead maker. He stored mead. I'm not sure how long they aged the mead. I th- it's a, roughly a year, I believe. But I don't know exactly the time frame. And then right back to us for this beer. Yep. Jason, would it be fair to say that this beer is more attenuated than the first beer we sampled? Um, ever so slightly. No. Um, because the beer was effectively finished when we, when we moved it into the barrel, um, there was the fermentation was basically done. What was and even the souring phase of the lactic acid production was over. So you know, back to like what I referenced earlier about what we want from a barrel. Like, what are we trying to get out of the barrel? Even though we're aging sour beer in the barrel, and oftentimes the reason you age sour beer in a barrel is to get, you know, that the, the semi porous environment for the microbes to be happy. It's actually almost more like what we use barrel uh, curio barrels for bourbon barrels for. We really are looking to infuse the flavors of, of, the, of the residual spirit really more than anything else. So that's why I said earlier it's kind of a combination of both aspects of it. Next beer. Any other questions? As you go along, could you uh, say what you think is the uh, ideal temperature for the beers that we're, we're, we're tasting tonight? Yeah, sure, I mean, I'm pretty, I don't have a specific temperature for any of the beers, but I personally, um, for almost all beer, except if it's a super hot day, you know, like to be somewhere in the 45 to 50 degree range, I think is ideal. I mean, it's probably even a slightly warmer for these beers, especially in this atmosphere here where we're tasting very similar beers in a lot of ways. And a lot of the nuances that are different from beer to beer are aroma. And it's really hard to sometimes get those when, when it's super cold. So the next beer is um, Monmouth Red. Um, I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. So, uh, Monmouth Red is, uh, is actually a blend of Helena, the first beer we had, and James and Julie, which will be the next beer that we we try afterwards, both aged in, um, apple brandy barrels. So, you know, apple brandy barrels, like many barrels, start as bourbon barrels. I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, by law, um, bourbon, if, if you're gonna call your spirit bourbon, it has to be uh, new, new American oak, always, has to be a minimum of, I believe, four years of aging time. And there's certain speculations about the ingredients as well, how much corn you're using in, in, uh, in your recipe. But as a result of the barrels being, well, first time use, and bourbon's fairly popular and there's a lot of it made, there's, I don't wanna say an, a, an excess of barrels, because they are hard to get these days. But there there are barrels left over, um, and so many other spirit producers—tequila, um, apple brandy, rum, scotch—are uh, the majority of that aging is done in bourbon barrels because there's not the same stipulation in the other spirit production for one-time use. So it'll they'll end up getting recycled into that a lot. So. It's pretty common for if we get in a tequila barrel, it's quite obvious that it used to be a bourbon barrel and so on. Um, You know, a lot of that process for spirit is they're looking to, you know, it's a long-term aging process. They're looking to kind of condense it, get some color addition, oxidative effects over time and so on. So they almost don't so much care what was in it before. I mean, they want some oak character, but over three or four or five, 10, 12 years of aging, you're going to get that for sure. So this beer, uh, like I said, in the end, it was originally intended to just, we original thought was just to use Helena, the first base beer. But uh, after a little bit of blending, we found that it was nice to use kind of a combination of the two. So, yeah, i uh-huh. me finish this first. Um, so, you know, you're getting a little bit of those same kind of Venice apple flavors that you get from from Helena. But in addition, you're getting, you know, I get kind of dried prunes. You get a little bit of kind of spirit-like character. I don't know if anyone drinks much apple brandy, but you can definitely get some of those flavor components there. You get an earthiness, almost like fresh dug soil, uh, potting, fresh potting soil kind of aroma. Um, Some kind of candy cherry. get a little bit of mustiness, too. You know, once, like I said, the barrel is, um, you know, it has kind of oxidative effect over time. You know, these barrels are breathable, so there's oxygen ingress in and out, um, you know, which, you know, is not typically a good thing for beer. I mean, we do everything we can in the rest of our brewery to keep oxygen out of the beer because it contributes to staling flavors. But there's something remarkable about, about sour beer and wild beer and its ability to kind of withstand those... Those effects, in terms of, you know, in a say, a, a, you know, a light lager, for example, you're going to get a lot of kind of papery, cardboardy, unpleasant type aromas. Here, it translate. If you do get oxidative effects, it translates more into a, you know, sherry kind of notes, which are a lot more appe- uh, uh, you know, appealing. <laughs> Monmouth Red, so. Um, it comes from the town in which the apple brandy is made. And I actually hesitated, and you know, we're getting recorded here, so I'm probably going to get in trouble. But um, we, the, the, I'll still leave it unnamed, but the apple brandy producer we got them from was kind enough to sell them to us, but they said, you cannot say where these came from. And I just did. Well, I didn't really, but... but yeah. so, <laughs> Yeah, so don't look, don't Google that. What's that? Probably, yeah, probably. Uh, Good question, nine and a half. So, um, you know, we'll go back actually, we'll not go back, we'll try James and Julie, which is half of it, so that beer is about 7.7, first one is six and a half, the two blends, but you also get, you know, once again, Residual spirit, and also this is a little bit of a longer aging time, so it can start to get some condensing of, you know, concentration of, of the beer itself just through evaporation. So, yeah, I mean, goes without saying you get kind of a warming uh, warming feeling in, in the mouthfeel, especially in the finish. It certainly has, I think, some of that spirit flavor or, or, sorry, aroma that you get is just ethanol just in the beer especially as it warms up. Any other questions? Um, So James and Julie, actually, the next beer we're going to try is... Are sour brown, so in a lot of ways it's this—it's the brother or the sister of Helena. Process is very similar to start with, Um, fairly similar strength. This is a little stronger in alcohol. Um, Malt is is pretty similar. Both have Munich malt, our our base malt, um, biscuit malt, and special B. Special B is a. For anybody who's a homebrew, I'm sure is familiar with it, but Chessabee is a pretty unique caramel malt that's um, typically produced in Belgium that gives a lot of kind of raisiny-type notes to the beer. Very unique aromas. There's some of that in Helena, but there's a lot more of it in this beer. So even though the color is fairly similar, they're both... One's, one we call red, one we call brown, but they're both kind of reddish. One, the brown is a little bit darker. You get a lot more sweetness in this beer. You get a lot more... Um, body, perceived body, I should say, um, and then they're both started in stainless steel with our house yeast through normal fermentation, and, they're, and then they're, but they and they're both finished with our blend of lactobacillus and pediococcus. So, lactobacillus and pediococcus are lactic acid-producing bacteria. So, you know, also found. As yogurt cultures, you know, that's probably where people who aren't familiar with beer would have heard those before. Um, But when used properly in beer, you can produce very clean, um, hopefully predictable acidity, intentional acidity, intentional sourness. Uh, In a side note, ironically, those same microbes are two of the biggest enemies in every other brewery in the world, including the majority of our beer. So we have, uh, you know, uh, Uh, you know, lots of procedures in place at the brewery and a a quality control team of four who are constantly working on protecting and and detecting the presence of lactobacillus, pediococcus, and britanomyces in our beers. At the same time, over here, we're intentionally putting those same things in our beer to produce intentional flavors. So it's kind of a weird irony in in our brewing world. Um, And 99% of the breweries in the world by volume are do everything they can to keep them completely out of all their beers. So, um, kind of a fun, fun different way to look at things. But it by no means means that we are cavalier about it. Um, we're very, se- we keep things very separate, we're very controlled with how we add these things, we're very controlled with how we keep them separate because these same wonderful flavors that are produced in these beers, you know, would not be so nice in Allagash White, so. Do what we can to keep it out. So, um, James and Julie, the the big difference between James and Julie and Helena, not other than a little bit darker, a little bit more um, kind of car- caramelized finished, is this is a hundred percent stainless steel. So this does not go into oak at all uh, until it gets into you know these uh, spirit infused situations. But it's hundred percent stainless steel. So. Like I said earlier, kind of modeled after, um, you know, Flanders Brown style beer. Um, so you get, you know, some... Does everybody have that now? So, yeah, you, you know, the, those, the, one, without the oak, you don't get as much of maybe that Venice tannic character that you had from the first one. And I think that almost makes it perceive even more acidic, more tart, because it doesn't have as much of that kind of astringency to it. Um, but you also get from, from the caramelized malt, you get a lot of kind of dried fruit character. I get a lot of prune, kind of prunes character from it, um, kind of conquered grape juice-like flavor, um, caramelized brown sugar, that kind of thing. So name, Everyone, someone's going to ask, so I'll have to say it, it's kind of even worse. Um, Sour Brown, so James Brown, and for those people of the MTV age, downtown Julie Brown. That's where the name comes from. Uh, And actually, in a side note, I like to think it's named after my wife and some random dude, because my wife's name is Julie, and... um, Rob, the owner of the of the brewery, has always called my wife downtown Julie Brown since the day he met her. So, um, I think it's my wife's beer. And James, I don't know who James is, but so how long is this one? Is aged? This one is aged. Both this and Helena are basically the same age, but about two years for both. Two years in oak for Helena. Two years in stainless for this. Um, in my opinion, this beer is ready now. This we hand bottled out of the tank, it's still in the tank. But just for our, through our cycle of production, we haven't yet packaged it yet, but we will, we will be later this year for sure. Um, we tend to be pretty slow with our wild beer and sour beer programs. There's no doubt we could, if all we were caring about was producing acid, producing lactic acidity in the beer, we could do it a lot quicker. You know, with heavier additions of the bacteria, with higher temperatures, for sure. Um, But we found that doing it slower produces a way more rounded flavor overall. It's not as aggressive. It's not, you know, you get the flavors melded a lot more together. In the case of oak, you don't get as much of uh, the vinegar character. Um, Acetic acid is vinegar. That's the aroma that you get and flavor you get from from vinegar, so not that people are in the habit of sipping vinegar straight out of a bottle, but if you are, it's, it burns the hell out of your throat. Lactic acid does not. I mean, it, 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 it's like sorbet almost. It's got, you know, it's a very pleasant acidity uh, on your tongue and on your cheeks, but there's no burning in the throat. Um, if you produce sour beers at higher temperatures, it makes acetobacter, which is what produces acetic acid, a lot happier. Um, So you will tend to, it's hard to avoid in that case. So um, this beer, probably we could have made ready faster, but we're just super cautious with the speed of things, almost to a fault. Um, Takes a long time to do some of these, but I, I definitely believe in being patient. Are there uh, are there any issues with sour beers that make them more challenging than, than non-sours? I'm thinking something like head retention. Is it more difficult to achieve that with a sour? That's a great question, and it's definitely true. Um, you know, especially when you start working with um, Brettanomyces. You know, which is I haven't mentioned because actually these beers we don't the beers we're drinking today are not we're not utilizing Brettanomyces as as the kind of third major. Um, wild beer-producing microbe, but uh, Britannomyces has this ability to, it's effectively a yeast, but it will consume sugars that normal yeast won't. It'll, conser- it'll even break down proteins through protein degradation, and proteins is what produces head retention in a beer. So one of the compounds that produces head retention in a beer. So you will find uh, with sour beers um, and especially with Britannomyces beers, that you will have, even at very high carbonation levels. I mean, some, some of our beers with Pertanomyces are almost twice the carbonation of a normal bottled beer. Uh, and you'll pour it in the glass, and it'll foam like crazy. And then you wait a, you know, a minute, and it's completely gone. Because the head retention is all about, you've got to have something in solution, protein, to kind of keep, keep those bubbles afloat. A, a great example of that is champagne. Everybody here has probably had champagne. It's incredibly carbonated, higher than almost any beer, if not every beer. But it pours its head, and then it's gone immediately. There is no head retention ability in champagne. And you get, you get some of that with beer, with sour beers, especially. One thing, one thing that is worth noting with comparing James and Julie and Helena Um, their final density or their final gravity, like the concentration of sugar in the finished beer, are identical if we were to measure them um, with lab instrumentation. Perception-wise, this beer, James and Julie, perceives a lot sweeter. Uh, And that's really from the use of, of more caramelized malt, especially that special bee malt I was referring to. So even though the beer itself, and in terms of density, concentration of sugars, is actually just as dry as the other one, it has this perception of sweetness in the finish, um, which I think you know, works really well with, um, with the final beer we'll try, especially with the rum barrels. But with spirit barrels, I think it adds a nice touch. And that's actually where we kind of end up with Monmouth Red, the last beer we tried with adding some of the James and Julie, because we kind of liked having some of that kind of residual sugar flavor and uh, kind of brown sugary type character to the beer. So we added a little bit of that. Any other questions? Can you talk a little bit about how sour beers age in the bottle? Yes, for sure. I could talk for an hour on that if you want. Um, yes. I mean, I, I get the question of, of cellaring and aging a lot with our beers. And if I have five seconds, my answer is don't do it. Every beer we sell is ready to drink when we sell it. It's. You know, just drink it now, don't save it." This is an educated crowd. There's more to that story. There's a lot more to that story. One of the reasons I knee-jerk and do that is because, unfortunately, there's an over-perception with beers, especially if you put a cork in it. As soon as you put a cork in it, the beer people think the beer is indestructible and it can age forever. And almost all beer is, is best consumed fresh across the board. So that's kind of my knee-jerk response. Uh, and I usually stick to it. The, the rest of that story, though, is that beers, sour beers, Britannomyces beers, wild beers, have an uncanny ability to withstand the effects of aging better. So, you know, some of these oxidative effects I keep talking about in a lot of beers will just slowly degrade the beer. And of course, temperature storage makes such a big difference. The most, the most, um, robust aging beer in the world, if you store it at 80 degrees for a month, it's gone, no matter what. Um, doesn't matter what the beer is. Uh, but you know, these, these sour beers with the presence of acidity and the pre- presence of wild yeast, or, or Britannomyces, it has a great ability to really withstand a lot of those effects of aging. Um, that being said, in, in my personal opinion, beers rarely get better. With extended aging, but that's also—I always preface that with my opinion. Some of the effects of um, these excessive sherry notes or cardboard notes that come about in aged beer, I'm personally not a huge fan of. But you know, I've talked to many people who age beer. You know, even a non-wild beer, like say a big barley one, age it for four or five years and try it, and they, they love those flavors. So, who am I to say that they're that they're wrong and I'm right? Um, I didn't really answer your question. <sighs> Specifically thinking of another brewery's sour beer that I tried in 2013 and in 2014. The 2013 was so much better. And I'm wondering, is it, was it just the year or was it because it had aged for an extra year? Almost an impossible question to answer because it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, you know, we, some of these beers are one-offs for us. And so, uh, ma- but many of them we do it again and again. And when you're working with barrels, and you're working with uh, microbes, it's really hard to get it the same every time. And to some degree, you don't always want to get it the same every time. Um, if you had years and years and years of practice uh, to do so, um, that would be different. Um, you know, I've had conversations with, to use an example, um, Frank Bone, who's the, you know, the owner and of Bone Lambic in Belgium, and he, he says, I want my goose to be the same every single time. Like, I, I, I've been doing this long enough, I've perfected it, I want it to be the same. I have a ton of respect for that. We, we make a goose style beer, our kool beers, and I, they're similar, but they're definitely not the same every time. You're working with different bases and different ages, and di- microbes are pain in the ass, they'll act differently each time, and so on and so forth. Uh, that being said, age will most certainly change a beer. I think it's up to the consumer whether it makes it better or worse, but it definitely changes it. So, these beers that have taken two plus years to make, how long have you been working on them? Um, so we've been doing, across the board, we've been doing kind of what I would call wild beers. So Sour and Bertendomyces beers for about 12 years now. Um, for a specific beer, it really depends on the beer. Sometimes, with the case of the Sour uh, Brown and Sour Red, you know, we just kind of did it. And, and so that beer, we didn't pile it at all. We just, based on our experience uh, and what we hoped to get for flavors, we just brewed it. Uh, and so, you know, working on that, was this, this is the one and only batch of that beer. Um, most of the time, we, perf- we have a pilot pilot system, we'll pilot beers again and again, and get them just the way we want, but in the case of these wild beers, it's difficult to do so, especially when you start using a barrel or a fodder. You know, we can't pilot what's gonna happen in a, a 3,000 gallon fodder. So sometimes we'll do a little small, you know, five gallon, 10 gallon oak barrel to, to try it out, but really the, what happens in that barrel is, so different what happens than the big one. So we, you know, use our own experience and, and make some educated decisions. Um, you know, luckily, we have an expectation in our head what the flavors are going to be like, but there is no ex- overall expectation because we've never made it before. So, um, you know, when you do it, you know, you, you get it right sometimes, and sometimes you don't. We definitely... You know, one thing I, I tell uh, people who are just getting into... Breweries who are getting into into sour beer for the first time, you know, sometimes we'll get questions at festivals or on phone calls, like, you know, asking for advice. And one of the things I always tell them is, you know, you or your owner, uh, whoever writes the checks at your place, better be ready to dump a whole bunch of beer. And if you're not, don't do this because you're gonna stuff's not going to happen exactly where you want. And you know, with these kind of beers, we control everything we can. You know, it's not like brewing on, on our, in our stainless steel tanks where we have a lot more control. We control everything we can. We control raw materials. We control barrel selection as tightly as we can. We control process. We control microbe growth, temperature of the barrel room, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some things that are out of our control. And the only way to control the stuff that's out of our control is blending. And part of blending means I'm not using that barrel. I'm using this one, but I'm not using that one, so that goes to the drain, which is kind of sad, but it is the only way to make these beers well, I think. Do we have the final one? You guys ahead of me? The nettles? Um, So, yeah, so nettles. So nettles is... James and Julius Sour Brown aged in rum barrels. So um, we have uh, a kind of a cool uh, working relationship with a distillery that's just down the street from us, um, about half a mile down the road from us, called New England Distilling. Um, they make fantastic gin, rum, and rye whiskey. So if you're spirit drinkers, I, they do distribute around here, so check them out. Uh, Gunpowder. Rye, and Eight Bells Realm the, are the two spirits you'll see around here, um, and we have a little historical tie to them as well. Uh, Ned White, who's the owner and head distiller there, was the first, impl- first full-time employee at Allagash and uh, worked for, worked for at Allagash from about 95 to about 2002. I worked with him for several years myself, and then he left and did some other stuff and then opened a distillery, so he's still a very good brewery friend and been in the industry Booze industry in some way for quite some time. Um, Nettles, kind of a funny name. Um, years ago, when we were both working at the brewery, uh, it was basically just me, myself, and Rob, the owner, and uh, some. You know, we used to get random tours to come into the brewery. Uh, now we have you know a tap room and a tour staff, which is you know nice because then the brewers don't have to do it anymore. But uh, the you know we used to just get the door would open and these people would come in, and so this group of um, a small group of, of retired women were on this, why they wanted to do a brew tour, I'm not quite sure, but they came through, and uh, Rob greeted them at first, and talked them through, and Tim tasted a couple beers, and then he said to them, okay, I gotta go, uh, go now, but this is, this is Ned, and Ned'll take care of you from here, and apparently all they heard was Nettle, so for the rest of the tour, they kept calling him Nettle, so they were like, Hey Ned! Hey Nettle! What's this over here? What's this? So that became Ned's nickname. We called him Nettles uh, for a long, long time. Uh, he doesn't like the name very much, but I, I kind of do. Uh, so anyway, we once again cycle of the barrels is kind of cool. We um, because we typically we have a contract for whiskey barrels. They're, like I mentioned briefly earlier, they're really hard to get these days. Uh, they didn't used to be when we first started working with barrels, but there's a pretty big demand for oak barrels these days um, because of all these spirit producers I referred to and you know a lot of these spirit producers are owned by pretty big conglomerates now so they will just gobble up you know buy the truckload all these barrels so for us to get supply we really and and consistent supply like we're very big on not just any barrel we want a specific brand specific age freshly emptied etc we need a contract and so we're very we're very uh, stingy with it. We don't, we don't let anybody use our barrels because we use every single drop. The only exception is Ned. Um, because he's, um, he's small, like we can give him a couple barrels every couple months, we give him barrels from our contract of whiskey. He doesn't want them after they've had beer in them. He, he really likes them after they've just had whiskey in them. So he'll take them, and he'll age his rum in them for a year plus, and then he'll give them back to us. So that it's kind of another one of these cool shared things. And then we can get to create a bear like this with uh, even more unique flavors. Um, so we get the barrels from him, you know, in this case, within a, you know, they're emptied in one day and we fill them the next day. And because we have this tank of James and Julie kind of hanging out and waiting, um, we can fill them as they come. Um, you know, a lot of times with our, with our oak aging, we'll be really specific with how long the beer ages in a barrel. Like, we'll decide, okay, this one's going to be six months, or this one's going to be three months. In this case, it's a little bit dictated, well, a lot dictated by practicality. He's a small distillery, so we get one at a time. So we'll get one, you know, one month, and then six weeks, seven weeks later, we'll get another, and so on. And so the end blended beer is, you know, maybe three months in oak, four months in oak, six months in oak, and so on. So you kind of get, you know... This myriad age uh, flavor of different different effects of aging over time. Um, you know, some of those same kind of dried fruit type flavors there, but I also get brown sugar, a little bit of figs. You get some of those musty notes from the aging process, and a musty almost sounds not good, but it almost comes through as like a musty mushroom type type aroma. Certainly sherry notes. I get a little. Um, pumpernickel-like spice in the aroma, so a little, bit like, breadiness to it. This one is um, the strongest of the lot, 10.5%. So you're going to get even more of that warming effect. Um, one thing we did find as, as we were working with this beer is that um, when we fir- the first barrel we ever filled, the beer wasn't completely acidified yet. It was part way there, but wasn't all the way. Um, and then the next barrel we filled was several months later, and the, beer, the base beer was already pretty acidified. But what we found was, as soon as this beer hits the barrel, the acidification process stops. Um, so that first barrel we filled didn't acidify anymore even though the rest of the base beer continued to acidify. And, you know, I'm quite sure that's because of the alcohol jump. Um, Lactobacillus and Pediococcus are pretty, um, are not very alcohol tolerant. If you ask a a lab, they will tell you that they, you know, have alcohol tolerance of 6 or so percent alcohol. That's certainly, we know that not to be the case. It can withstand a little bit more than that. But, um, and it, you know, maybe I'm just being a lab geeky, but it's kind of interesting that, to me that, you know, as soon as it hit the, the spirit that was in the barrel, it created an atmosphere that just was no good for the lactic acid producing bacteria, and they just died right out. So that, that barrel we actually didn't even use as part of the blend uh, of the spear. Vanilla is a pretty common flavor characteristic that you get from oak aging, especially with charred barrels. So um, I certainly get that a little bit, both in the aroma and the flavor here. Any questions? If I don't hope it's okay, but if anyone wants another report of some of these, I think it would probably be might be interesting to go back and try some of those base beers um, ahead of time. Jason, can you share anything that might be on the drawing board at this point? What's coming up? Yeah, we uh, we have a lot. Um, you know, we are fortunate in the last uh, couple years to be able to take over some additional space for. Our kind of wild and sour beer program, and we were pretty limited with with space for it. I mean, that's a really big limiting factor with producing these beers. Is um, they, you know, like I said, at one year, two years, probably an average of eighteen to twenty four months for all the beers we make in the, in this fashion. So it, it takes up a, a good chunk of space, and so we were pretty limited for a while. And uh, we actually took over the original brewery, that we, the original space that we started the brewery in, uh, and we're able to dedicate that exclusively to these beers, so we have a, a lot of stuff going on. We took over that space about two years ago, um, a little over two years ago, but because of the nature of the time these beers take, it's gonna take time for that beer to get to market, because you know, we took over the space, put some tanks in there, put a bunch of oak barrel storage in there, filled that storage over you know, a six, eight month period of time. And so now we kind of have to wait for it to come through. Um, so we have, let's see, this, um, this summer we get into fruit season for us, so that's a whole other kind of sour beer talk for, for another salon another time. Um, but we work with a lot of fresh fruit. Um, that's something I, that I've been adamant about from the beginning is that uh, we use only fresh local fruit for our fruit beers. And you know, whenever I say that, I always say it's not that I have a problem with frozen or dried fruit. There's some really beautiful, fantastic beers being made with frozen fruit, you know, fresh, quick frozen fruit and dried fruit. So, you know, and I drink those beers; they're fantastic. But we've just chosen, somewhat philosophically, to use fresh fruit. I mean, being in Maine, we've got farmers all around us and grapefruit all around us. and there's also there's something it's hard to put my finger on it, but there's something about the just super fresh uh, aroma that you get from the addition of fresh fruit. I mean, we're working with local farmers, so um, you know, we'll, there. There's plenty of downsides to it. Uh, They're horrible communicators, and they'll just show up with they'll say, "Oh yeah, I don't know, the fruit won't be picked for another week." And then the next day, they show up with three thousand pounds of fruit. We have to deal with. So there's some downsides. But the upside is because the real reason they're bad communicators is because they don't really know, and it's ready, it's ready, and they pick it. And so we get the fruit, and it's in the beer within 12 hours, sometimes less. I mean, you know, a lot of times they're bringing raspberries in, and they're in the barrel. Like, they've been picked two hours earlier, and they're in the beer. And there's something about that that aroma that you can't get with without fresh fruit. So... Um, but we're getting into that season, so late June through August it's, you know, as, as if we're not already busy enough with all the beer drinking that goes on in the summer and the production that's uh, needed for that, uh, we have a day where all of a sudden all our brewers have to sit down and cut peaches into eights or, uh, you, know, you know, take the stems off of cherries or whatever it may be. Um, it's fun, but it's a, it's a lot of work. So roundabout answer to your question is, before that happens, we're emptying tanks that have fruit in them. So from the previous year, a lot of our fruit beers are on you know, a six month to a year cycle. So um, we'll be emptying first uh, a beer we call the Vance, which is a Belgian quad aged in bourbon barrels and soured and then aged on strawberries. So, because the strawberries we'll probably see late this month. Um, so that, that will package first. That will see, that's just draft only, but you'll probably see it at certain beer accounts near you. It's a pretty, pretty complex, not pretty, it's the most complex beer we make, for sure, in terms of flavor profile. The, the quadruple that's there in the first place is our Allagash 4, which in itself is a pretty complex beer add bourbon barrel aging with uh, beer souring microorganisms, and then strawberries, and you get, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing beer, but it's definitely not, not one to, to drink on the golf course, I guess you could say. Um, and after that, we'll follow uh, Farm to Face, which is one of my favorite names, um, and that's a peach beer. So last year was the first year for that beer. We made twice as much this year. That is uh, utilizing um, local peaches actually they 're not maine, but they 're just across the border uh, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire area um, and the name came from we were uh, when we were picking the peaches last year with a farmer, uh, you know he had just finished one of these um, outstanding in the field uh, beer dinners which you may have heard of where they actually do a, a dinner in beer wine dinner in the actual field, pretty cool stuff, but you know he was talking about the whole farm to table movement and he 's kind of this you know. Typical farmer. Uh, you know, I, I don't know why people farm to table. He's like, I like farm to face. And he's like chewing on a peach, and peach juice is dripping down his face. And uh, right at that moment, we basically were like, we're, we're, we're taking that. That's our name <laughs> right there. Uh, so uh, so both of those beers will be coming out. Uh, we also have a beer called Nancy, uh, which is uh, with with um, cherries, local tart cherries, from, uh, the from a farm near us that's owned by Earl and Nancy, so we're named after after Nancy. Actually, originally it was called Earl until um, we realized that our, our pal Sean Hill at Hill Farmstead House already has a beer called Earl, so we went with the wife, so she's second fiddle there, I guess. Those are just a few, but we if you come to visit us at the brewery, it's almost always there'll be something for sale in the store that is only for sale in the store, because a lot of these, I mean, nettles, for example, you know, we we did 500 bottles. So just what's, you know, we just don't, it's just not enough to get it out to to distribution. So if you make the trek up to Maine, you will almost, uh, almost guaranteed there'll be something in the store that is not available uh, anywhere but there. So we give killer tours, so you should come check it out. What else guys? Got any other questions? I know it's like a, a parent out being asked to pick their favorite child, but um, any sours that you haven't talked about that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, good uh, good question. I, I you know, The answer is the one in my hand. That's always the easy answer, but um, Yeah, let me let me think about that. I mean, I one of the more fun projects we've done is our cool Ship project. So I don't know if if people have heard of of that, but basically that's um, we started in 2007, and uh, it's a project that really started as a total experiment to see if we could produce spontaneously what what so called spontaneously fermented beer in Portland, Maine. you know, uh, if you, you know, conventional wisdom in the brewing world and in some, te- some books that have been written, the thought was you could only make these kind of spontaneously fermented beers within a certain mile radius of Brussels, Belgium, um, Lambic production. And, and we had been making Belgian-style beers since we opened and, you know, love those style of beers. And so we you know, were kind of always curious if you could make those beers outside of that region you know, following a similar process. And we talked about it for a little bit, but it really just took one day, really, Rob, the owner, the man who writes the checkbook, to say, let's do this. I mean, he just literally came in one day in 07 and said, we're, we're putting one in and, in and putting in a cool ship. Because it required building a room, putting in a cool ship, which is this shallow cooling vessel, um, to really see if this project would work. and so in terms of being proud of something, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's, it's, some, it's been such a fun project since then because it, it really started as a true experiment. We really went into this investing in this building, investing in this cool ship, investing in time without have, knowing if it would work. Um, you know, we had some, some clues and some theories and some gut feelings that it would, but we didn't and it took a good two years before we really had any idea whether these um, spontaneously fermented beers would work. And, you know, just, you know, loosely what I'm talking about is here, a typical, almost all beer in the world is made by boil, you know, the mashing process, laddering process, boiled, add, add hops, and then you cool the wort down with some kind of mechanically closed, cooled system, which we do for almost all our beers. And then you add a cultured, type of yeast, a very specific type of yeast, for whatever reason you choose to add it. Um, With spontaneous fermentation, we don't cool the wort. We cool it, it goes straight into this shallow vessel, it kind of looks like a big brownie pan. And it, it stays in that shallow vessel for about 18 hours and cools naturally, just, you know, you spread the liquid out, more surface area, so it slowly cools over time. And during that process, it gets naturally inoculated with local, uh, wild yeast, um, lactic acid bacteria, and so forth. Um, so it's been a super fun project with figuring out, once again, back to this, you control what you can control. Um, we've learned that one of our big control factors of that beer is temperature of outside. Like, very specifically. we We started with this range of, say, overnight temperature of 25 to 55 degrees. You know, now we're down to 28 to 35. Like basically, we'll cancel the brew if it looks like it's going to be too warm, because that is our control. That's, you know, uh, we can't add a certain amount of micro. We can't, in that case, we're doing true natural natural inoculation. So our control factor is temperature. So, and now it's you know now it's been, you know, we're into our eighth year with it. We have a bigger stock of these beers. They take two to three years to ferment and age. Um, we have more. More beer to blend with, so it's it's been super fun project with, uh, you know, it's been like a eight year experiment basically, and those are one of these beers you can only get at the brewery. Do you think? sorry. Um. Do you think that uh, over over the years of having the cool ship, do you think that? The yeast kind of develops inside the room, um, and then you know eventually the better yeast kind of survives and makes better beer yeast. And so at certain points, less of what's floating in and more of what's in the room. Uh, yeah, I absolutely believe that for sure. Um, and you know, I think we have some pretty good evidence of that with the way the beers have continued to evolve over time. Um, you know, we. We, we kind of believed that going into it, and that's why we, we couldn't really pilot the project effectively. You know, we talked about, oh, we could just take a five-gallon bucket and fill it with wort and put it in the parking lot, but we didn't really feel like that would tell us the true story. Um, and as we've used the room and used the cool ship, everything... Well, for one, the fermentations have started a lot faster. The first The first season we brewed, fermentations took seven to ten days to see vigorous, like messy fermentation. We now see them in two days. Um, and if we brew, like this past fall, we brewed seven batches in a season, in the, in the fall season, each one was slightly faster. So there's, there's some kind of buildup in there. And, and because of that, and because of that theory, every year when we start a season, we do what we call prime the cool ship, which basically means we put about 100 gallons of white work because we're brewing white all the time, into the cool ship to kind of get heat in the room, get some steam in there, wake it up, if you will. And whether or not that works, I don't know, but it, all the evidence seems to point to that. So, um, and it's nice because I think overall, our selection of available blending beer has really gotten better and better over the years. So, but yeah, I definitely believe that. Time for one more question. All right, well, please join me in thanking Jason for a great presentation. Thank you for listening to this recording from Saver 2015, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Saver 2015, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Saver at craftbeerradio.com slash saver or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.